Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 388. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreau. Thanks, Jack. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 388 you're listening to. My guest today is producer, mixer, recording engineer, Will Kennedy, based out of Los Angeles, California. Will's worked on projects for U2, Michael Fronte and Spearhead, One Republic, the B-52s, Jason Mraz, and a host of many others. You can read all about them at willkennedyproducer.com. Will and I got acquainted through an Atmos Mixers group that we belong to, and so we've been chatting a bit online, and I'm very excited to have him on the show so we can actually speak in person. Well, you know, on Zoom, but that kind of counts these days, right? Anyways, very excited to have him on. Will Kennedy coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about paying it forward. I have been, without a doubt, the recipient of so much help from fellow engineers. It's truly unbelievable. And this latest Atmos adventure is yet another example of my fellow audio professionals helping me out. I've talked about it before, but people have been just so generous with their time, with their knowledge, with their encouragement. But if I look back, it's been going on for the last, I don't know, 28 years. Yeah, people have been very helpful to me along the way. And I bet if you're in a position where you're doing pretty well in the world of audio, I bet you've been helped out along the way as well. So now that I'm getting on the other side of the hump as far as this Atmos thing and getting it set up and going, you can imagine people are now starting to reach out to me like I was reaching out to my friends before. So I'm all too happy to help them out and sharing the knowledge that has been shared with me. That's paying it forward. And most recently, a fellow engineer reached out over text to me and said, can I hire you to consult me on this Dolby Atmos thing? And I said, absolutely not, but I'm all too happy to help you for free. And some of you might say, hey, Matt, you know, you just put out a chunk of dough for all those speakers and your monitor controller and, you know, getting your room together. You should capitalize on that and charge for it. Well, I didn't set all this up to be an Atmos consultant, and that's not my business model. So when my friends and fellow audio professionals reach out and want to talk Atmos, I want to help and I don't necessarily have to charge them for it. So I'm in the business now of mixing Atmos and that's what I'm going to charge for. The paying it forward aspect is important to me because especially with the Atmos deal, because I want it to succeed and to help it succeed. I want to help my other audio professionals out there get up and running. So this thing spreads all over the place. Yeah, sure. I mean, I could make a quick buck, but you know, it gives me a great thrill to help others out. It really does. It's like giving a gift when you're, you know, sharing some kind of knowledge. You feel like, hey, check this out. I learned this thing. You should learn it too. And I'm not saying that I don't, you know, charge for my time when I'm consulting with people. But in this particular case, I feel compelled to help others go through the journey just like I did. 
But at most conversation aside, helping others get into the world of audio, mentoring people, handing out the advice and trying to make sure that they don't make the same mistakes you did. Of course, they need to make some mistakes. Hopefully they'll make different mistakes, but guiding others into the world of audio is super important. And make no mistake, the business aspect of what we do is critical. We should, you know, definitely be compensated for our talents and what we bring to the table. Absolutely. But I have to say, on the other side of it, on the paying it forward side of it, nothing thrills me more than getting together with people over coffee who are less experienced and need a little help, need a little guidance. You know, what's an hour long coffee and sharing some knowledge? If it's with a stranger, you make a new friend, you get a cup of coffee, you know, hell, you had me at the cup of coffee, really. As usual, I could go down a rabbit hole and just ramble on and on. So let me just sum it up. If you've been fortunate to have a little helping hand along the way, consider paying it forward by helping out others. Even if it's, you know, a chat over FaceTime or Zoom or a cup of coffee with somebody or an email or text exchange, helping somebody out in the world of audio is only going to be better for all of us because we all want things to be up to a certain standard, a certain level of professionalism. And if you're a professional and you're helping guide somebody new in, guide them the right way so that they're doing the right thing so that we don't get 10 years down the road and have an industry full of people doing things for way too cheap, doing things that make the art sound bad and being assholes about it, right? Show people the way, show people how to do it right, make it sound great, and be a good person, that to me is the way forward for anything. But for our purposes, we're talking about audio. So that's it. Be good business people, but also know when to set aside some time to pay it forward and help others out. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pres to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. 
I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Will Kennedy here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Will, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Matt. Great to have you. Will and I met as the result of a, we'll call it a secret society that we belong to. <laughs> <laughs> no, we essentially- But not the Masons. To, not the Masons. It's, it's like a distant cousin of the Masons. And anyways, we belong to a group of people that mix Atmos. And so we talk about Atmos mixing, as you would gather from that description. So we're just going to dive right in. And my audience knows this. I always kind of follow the same line of questioning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a tiny little farming town in Western New York State, about 30 miles east of Niagara Falls, 45 miles north of Buffalo. Tell me about your upbringing in regards to how music or audio or electronics or any kind of influences such as those, how did that play out in your upbringing? Yeah, there weren't many. My parents, neither of them were really musical in any way. My mother, for a time before she was married, was a Catholic nun, so she did some singing in the convent. But other than that, really not much musically going on. I do come from a very small family. I just have two aunts and uncle and three cousins. Two of my cousins, they were both older than me, got into music when they were teenagers. One became a bassist, one a drummer. And I kind of looked up to them and wanted to do what they were doing, at least to some degree. And I wasn't the kid who was desperate to pick up a guitar or an instrument and dig in and start playing right from the time I was very young. Mm. My mother had to force me to join the school band. She said, this is something you're going to do. I begrudgingly said, okay, fine. By the time I got to high school, I should say I had a, a really inspirational middle school band director who saw something in me that I don't think I saw in myself and pushed me a little extra hard. By the time I got through high school, I was, I was in love. I knew when I was graduating from high school, I wanted to do something in music. I wasn't sure what that was going to be. Coming from a tiny little town, there isn't really a lot of recognition of what's possible to do in the music business outside of really the choices that are sort of presented to you are you can teach it, you can play in a symphony orchestra, or you can be a pop star. And 
being a pop star is not a terribly stable choice for a career path. I had no want to play in a symphony orchestra, at least, you know, as a lifetime thing. And the amount of work that goes into that is obviously tremendous. And I didn't really think I wanted to teach, so I was sort of lost as to what I was going to do next. And I, it took me a while. I, I sort of wandered through my first two years of college, ended up dropping out, took a couple of years off, and then landed at Berklee College of Music in Boston. And that opened up a whole new world for me. And when I got to Berkeley, I, I didn't know what a recording engineer did. I didn't know how to push a fader or what that fader was supposed to be doing. <laughs> and I quickly, I, I got involved in some recording sessions as a musician there, and I just fell in love with the whole process. And that's what launched my career. What was your instrument or did you play multiple instruments? <sighs> so I took some guitar lessons when I was younger, but never seriously got into it. I played trumpet, euphonium, and then eventually trombone became my main instrument. And that's what I played when I was at Berkeley. That was my major instrument there. But I was hooking my trombone up to an amplifier with effects pedals, and I built a pickup for it out of a practice mute so I could run distortion and all sorts of crazy effects on it. So clearly I was heading in, in the recording direction. Yeah. I've mentioned it on this show before, how band directors can be real pivotal characters in our lives. My youngest son is leaving middle school. He'll be in high school next year. But the band director that he's had, well-known in our area, is retiring this year. And I honestly feel bad for the kids that are not going to get to experience this man's brilliance because he's an inspirational figure. And I, you could see the yeah. effect on the kids. And I, and I really... Um, I think that that idea of a band director as an inspirational character just, I don't know, it's it speaks to me because that was my experience. But Yeah, I think in general throughout my career, but definitely starting with middle school and high school, those were the mentors of my formative years. I'm still using things that they taught me, even now, whatever it's been, 30 years after I graduated high school. So, yeah, yeah I, I wouldn't be where I am without them. And they're never really, well, I can't say never. That would be a pretty broad statement, but they're rarely people who are of the same ilk as the rest of the faculty. They're not like the vice principal or whatever, the history teacher even, for that matter. They're always, there's something a little like they walk to the beat of a different drummer, if you'll excuse the pun, but they're just a little different. I, I would totally agree with that. That was my experience as well. And I think in a lot of ways, especially being from, I mean, when I say small town, my graduating high school class was 112 people. So it really was very tiny. So everybody knew everybody else. The peer pressure in that small town can also be really huge. The, the need to go along to get along. And that wasn't ever my personality. I wasn't trying to make trouble, but I always was kind of poking at things going, why do we have to do things this way? Why can't, I, I'm more comfortable doing this other thing. Why can't I just go do that? And I think that drew me to exactly the the characters that the band directors in, in my school district were. Yeah. And I think it's at that, when you realize that you're doing things, as you said, you know, go along to get along kind of thing. Sometimes you make decisions in that point in your life 
to satisfy others' expectations of yes. yourself rather than your own expectations. Yeah. Well, talk to me about Berkeley and what effect that had on you. What were the takeaways from that experience? It changed my life. That's in a, in a nutshell. I walked into Berkeley with this notion of wanting to be a part of making music. I had attempted in my sophomore year of college to do a music education degree. And over the summer, we had to go out and do these teaching practicums where we would hang out with working band directors in schools. And I immediately knew that was not for me. And my mother was, a, she's now retired, was a middle school teacher and a very good one. And so I grew up knowing what a responsibility teaching kids was. And I took that to heart. And I thought to myself, I don't want to be the person who is teaching, but wishing they could be doing the thing they're teaching. The teaching is the primary goal. And if you can't focus on that, then you shouldn't be doing it. So once I knew that, I knew I had to find something else. I had no idea what that was going to be. And like I said, my, my first trombone teacher at Berkeley was this wonderful man named Tom Pleshek. Tom was also into using effects on his trombone, so we bonded over that. And he suggested that I follow this path into what at the time was called a music synthesis major. Now it's more like sound design, but it was the idea, it's the mid-90s, right? So it was making music with computers, which wasn't the same thing as recording music. Those mm -hmm. were two very different things. It was tape machines and consoles or keyboards and computers and never the twain shall meet. <laughs> you record the MIDI performance onto a reel of tape. Anyway, that program and the music production and engineering program at Berkeley both followed the same coursework for the first year. And as I got further in and saw what was happening on the recording side, it really piqued my interest in an unexpected way. Hmm. And then, as I, I said, I, I got to hang out on some recording sessions, both as a musician there. Also, I had friends who were in the department. And the more I found out about what that job was and what it entailed, the more I thought, this is for me. This is what I was meant to do. I don't know if it was like this for you, but I've heard it happened to others where there's a bit of an identity crisis that occurs. Did that occur with you at all? Absolutely not. Because if I was taught one thing by Berkeley and I played my instrument right through my entire time there, it was, I wasn't good enough to do what the other trombonists there were doing. Mm. I certainly tried to practice as much as they did, but it didn't come as easily to me as it did to them. And when I looked at what my competition would be, I just thought yeah, something felt wrong about it to me. Wrong in the sense that it just wasn't the perfect fit. It was a fit, and it certainly would have been exciting, but I didn't think that what I wanted to do for a living was get on a stage and play an instrument every night. I felt more like a behind-the-scenes person. Mm. That suited my personality much better, and being able to sort of weave these magical sound tapestries was everything that I could ever have hoped for. To make other people sound great was a wonderful idea as far as I was concerned. So there was never really a moment where I thought, I was meant to do this other thing, but I'm going to do this instead. This became my calling. I've heard many people talk about that, about Berkeley having that effect on people, where they come to the realization that 
I'm actually not as good as these other people, you know, for better or for worse. Yeah, I would think that happens. I mean, if anybody's seen the movie Whiplash, oh, yeah, that <laughs> while certainly over dramatized, I remember sitting in the theater watching that movie thinking like and I had this discussion with another very good friend of mine who's an amazing drummer named Charlie Paxton, who is a friend of mine from Berkeley. We played in big bands together there. And Charlie said, I couldn't get through the whole thing because it was too close to home. You know, the pressure that's on you to perform is tremendous at music schools. Certainly no one ever threatened any of us with physical violence or any of that <laughs> stuff flung instruments at us. But everybody is there because they're good. And you realize you're suddenly competing on a, a whole different level. And it is a competition, like it or not. There's only so many gigs out there for people when they graduate. So yeah. the cream is going to rise to the top. So you you made a, a sharp turn and headed towards recording technology. Tell me about the emergence of that in your life. That was just an explosion. I had done over the years with the help of friends. I, I say I didn't really know how to push a fader when I, I got to Berkeley. And that may not be entirely true, but it's mostly true. I'd done a little bit of four track recording with, I had a band in my hometown, but I had a friend who understood how to run all that stuff. I didn't understand it. I had a vague understanding of how it all worked. So while I was coming to it, like understanding, okay, this is a thing that people do, Understanding the scale on which it happened, the multi-track recording, big analog consoles at the time, all of that stuff was a fight for me in terms of gaining the knowledge. But it was a fight I took on gladly, and I loved every minute of it. As I learned more and more, and I, I saw what I would be able to do once I mastered these skills, the, the, the whole process just looked like something I wanted to be a part of all the time. Did you continue with the Berkeley program as far as recording? I did. I graduated in 1999 and then immediately went out and got a job at Oceanway Nashville, which at the time was still owned by Alan Sides, who used to own Oceanway Recording here in Los Angeles, and Gary Bells. And that was my first gig out of college. So yeah, I went through graduated, got the degree, and then immediately dove right in. And for those listening who are not in California, Oceanway now is United, correct? United Recording, yes. Same building. The rooms are all pretty much technically the same as they were, but the name is different. Okay. And somebody else owns Oceanway Nashville now. That's a college, right? Yeah, it's owned by Belmont College. That's right. But at the time, both of those studios, well, they were both, at least in part, owned by Allen Sides. Okay. So you went in and, and started working there. Were you interning or were, were you paid? Were you a runner? <laughs> and this is where the story starts to get strange. I got hired as a studio technician. Now, to be fair to everybody involved as I tell the story, this is my memory of it, but I should say my that my first choice was I wanted to move to New York and... I had looked into getting a job at Bearsville Recording, which I don't, it's not around anymore, but it was a like a resort recording studio in the Catskills. I had had some teachers at Berkeley reach out and never got word back. 
And I was 25 when I graduated from Berkeley. As I said, I took some time off after my sophomore year, so I was a little older. I felt like I was sort of behind the eight ball. The other graduates were 21 years old, had a little bit of a head start on me, and I just thought, I'm not going to move back in with my parents at age 25 to save up money to move to New York City because it's ridiculously expensive, as it still is. So really the only choice, and I didn't, <laughs> oddly enough, the last thing on my list was moving to Los Angeles. I never thought I'd end up here. <laughs> so I had an acquaintance in Nashville and I called him up. He was so lonely. He'd been there for a year at that point and struggling to make it in the recording business. He showed me around town. I threw some resumes out. I didn't expect anything to stick. And then the day I was going to leave to head back to, I guess, to my mother's house near Buffalo, I got a call from Oceanway. They brought me in. They interviewed me. They didn't tell me what they were interviewing me for. I assumed it was to be a runner. And the next thing I know, they're saying, how are you with signal flow? And I said, if you mean patch bays, I'm great. If you mean circuit boards, that's a whole other kettle of fish. That's not what I do. And they said, oh, we'll train you to do it. You're hired. And they offered to pay me much more money. I mean, not great money, but more money than I was expecting to make. So I thought, screw it, let's do it. So I moved to Nashville and started working at Oceanway Nashville. And that was, I want to say June. Yeah, June of 1999. <laughs> How long did that last? Six months. Oh. <laughs> a number of things happened in that six months. One... It was a difficult time for the studio. The ownership w was not getting along with each other. My boss, the chief technician there, was having to field calls from both owners. We had a manager who wasn't necessarily in charge of the studio at that point. He was more sort of a, a figurehead to meet clients, and the chief tech was kind of running the place. We were installing a new console in the B room, the console from the C-Room was an API that Dave Grohl had just purchased and would eventually make a Grammy-winning album in his basement in Virginia on. We had moved what at the time was a Sony, it was the, the very first Sony Oxford console, digital console ever installed in a studio, into that C-Room, bought a VR for the B-Room, we're having upgrades done to the VR that were never, nothing was ever getting done on time. So I say all this to say, Everybody was under a whole lot of stress there, and it made it a less than pleasant place to work. And anybody who's worked at a recording studio knows it's a high-stress situation to begin with, so then just pile all this on top of that. The other thing I feel really grateful to be cognizant of is that I quickly realized that no matter how Nashville was trying to sell itself at that point, and I think to a great degree even now, if you're gonna make money in the business in Nashville, you're gonna work on country music, you're going to work on contemporary Christian music. Those are the engines of the business in that town. Now, just like everywhere else, it certainly shifts one way or the other, but that's gonna be a good chunk. Like, if you're just trying to make the rent, you're gonna be working on that stuff. And I didn't wanna work on it. It just was not my oeuvre. And then my father had a really serious heart attack. That was wow. August, I believe, of that year. And I had one of those, life is short, do what you want to do while you've got time to do it moments. And by October, I pulled up stakes and, and moved to New York City. Wow. 
Did your father survive the heart attack? Yes, yes, he's still with us, 80 years old now. They told him at the time he might make it 10 more years, and he's made it 23, so <laughs> pretty yeah. fantastic. Doctors can be like weathermen, you know? Yes, yeah. Slight chance of rain. <laughs> might last 10 years, but yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that, that he's still with us. That's awesome. I'm sure that was a stressful moment. You're in a town that you're like, what am I doing here? Dad's having a heart attack. Yeah, let's move yeah. to New York. What was that experience like to try to make it in New York? New York is a hard place to live without money. <laughs> I bounced around there, same kind of thing. I got to New York, I started passing resumes out. I had a couple of interviews and eventually landed at Right Track Recording, what was Right Track Recording, which I couldn't have been in a better place. It was one of the few studios in town that was still working on a variety of different kinds of music. We would have jingle sessions there. We had rock and roll sessions there. We had Broadway cast recordings there. We had pop sessions there. Phil Ramone was a regular client. Frank Filippetti was a part owner of the studio, so he was obviously there all the time. At the time, the late 90s, pretty much every studio in New York to pay the bills what you were going to work on there was hip-hop. That's what was making money for everybody. So most studios in town were all hip-hop all the time. We were lucky that we were some hip-hop some of the time. So I had that experience, but I also had the experience of, all right, Pat Metheny's recording a record with Frank, or we've got a jingle session in the A-room with some strange hybrid rock and roll and jazz band. That was fantastic. But again, I got hired, and I cannot explain why, as a studio technician. Although at that point, it was probably because my resume said that I had been a studio <laughs> I technician. I was going to say, it's on your resume by that point. Now, I had told them in Nashville, I was very clear, listen, I don't know how to do this. I had the same conversation with them. I said, I want to be an assistant. I want to be a recording engineer. I do not want to be a studio technician. And the place was being managed by Barry Bon Jovi at the time, who's brother of Tony. They worked together at Power Station, cousin to John. And Barry said, yeah, we'll put you on the assisting track. And that sounded good to me. But I knew I wasn't doing my best work as a tech. I was barely hanging on. You know, if anything really serious needed to be done in terms of getting into the guts of audio equipment, I was not going to be that guy. If you told me what to do, like, hey, we're going to swap out all the capacitors on this circuit board. Yeah, I can do that for you. But I did not understand it well enough to be in that position. Right. <laughs> so it was it was tough. And then I was making minimum wage, working, I think the most number of hours I ever put in in a week was 128. I often slept at the studio. You know, and everybody's got these stories from that time. It's not like I'm something special in saying any of this. But it was tough. It was tough. I would have to decide. The studio was right on 48th Street and 7th Avenue, just in Times Square. So I might have $7 in my pocket, and that was not enough money to buy a Big Mac meal at the McDonald's in Times Square. I could walk 10 blocks downtown, and it would be just cheap enough to get, or I was living in Jersey City, I could get on the PATH train, and it would be $4 cheaper. <laughs> so I would wow. wait with my stomach growling all the way out to Jersey and hope that I would get there before the McDonald's closed. 
Did you ever have any uh, ideas that you wanted to quit at that time? Were you frustrated? I was, and I think everybody who has done any one of those jobs at a studio, be it as a, in New York, they were GAs in Los Angeles, they're runners, or been a junior technician at a studio, they're tough gigs and you're always frustrated. And you hang on because you want to do the work. You know, if, if everything's going well at a place like Right Track, you're learning something every day, you're working with the best of the best, and that's an education you just can't get any other way. Yeah. And certainly people did quit. I think everybody's got different priorities. And I remember we had a bad run of sessions over the course of a couple of weeks. And Barry called a studio staff meeting. I remember we were sitting in the live room of Studio A. And one of the things he said was, listen, I think you're all great people. And you could all make way more money doing something else. <laughs> if you want to have a girlfriend, you want to have a boyfriend, if that's at the top of your to-do list, if you want to make more money, if you want to live in a different city, if you want to live in a better apartment, whatever, go get another job. There are a lot of people waiting for these jobs, but this is what this is, and it requires everything of you. He's like, I, I want you all to stay, but I don't want you to stay if you don't want this the way you thought you wanted it. And I thought that's huge. It's yeah. a really important message because the business doesn't ever let up. Even you know now that I'm out working as a freelance producer and mixer and engineer, it's still tough. And every, everybody you talk to will tell you that. You have to want it. You have to love it. You have to make yourself available. Yes. Yeah. I found that, and I'm sure you have as well, that opportunity doesn't come when it's convenient for you. Never, never. It's a, a running joke between me and a, a couple of friends that if you want to book work, if you're not busy and you want to book work, just plan a vacation. Because <laughs> the moment you do, there's going to be five people calling for those dates that you just bought a, a plane ticket for. Yeah. When I was a young kid full of piss and vinegar, and I was taking the bus in San Francisco, you know, you'd be waiting forever. And the minute you lit a cigarette, it was like, oh crap, there's the bus now. <laughs> it's just, yeah. I mean, that's what it makes me think of. I no longer smoke. Yeah. I haven't been taking the bus very often, but yeah. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it, and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro-looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. 
There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Well, how long did New York last? We're we're definitely in the middle of it now. Uh, New York was about a year and a half. Hmm. And unfortunately, what happened was I got sick. I developed a chronic condition. I, you know, I had no health benefits working at the studio. I distinctly remember walking to the PATH station in Jersey City. I think it was one evening. But because sometimes I was working day shift, sometimes I was working night shift, my body was completely confused as to what time of day it was. And I do remember, I didn't wear a watch, just walking along, looking at the sun on the horizon and trying to sort out whether it was sunrise or sunset. Hmm. (laughs) Not figuring it out until I passed a store that had a clock on it. And it it just became clear to me that I was either going to get my health straightened out or this job quite literally could kill me. I just... Physically, I was not able to, to do it. Yeah. And that was heartbreaking to me. I felt here I was doing this thing that to me seemed incredibly important. My parents had supported me so much through college and you know all the years before that when I was trying to figure out what I was doing with myself. And I just felt like I was going to let everybody down. But I didn't have a choice. As it turned out, everybody was very supportive when I told them what was going on. But I ended up... I think it was in maybe November of the following year, I ended up moving back to Boston and I had worked part-time for the AV department at Harvard while I was going to Berkeley. Mm -hmm. They had a full-time position opened up and they hired me for it. And what I needed was benefits and a nine to five schedule and time to understand what my new reality of dealing with my health was. Yeah. And it provided that. So I, I left the job in New York City, moved to Boston. I worked at Harvard for four and a half years. In the AV department? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I was the technical operations supervisor of the audiovisual department. But that must have been great because it probably allowed you to just kind of settle down, get a grip on your health, get a grip on the future, what the future was going to hold. Yeah. And these were, so this was my late 20s. And during this period of time, I did get a grip on my health. I figured out what I needed to do to keep myself healthy and what I needed, you know, the, the effort that I had to put in there. I met the woman who is now my wife. And if nothing else, it taught me, because there I was after four years still thinking to myself, I wonder what could have been if I could have stayed in the recording business. And this was a great job. That I had no reason to complain about it. You know, I wasn't going to get rich doing it, but we had an unbelievable amount of time off every year. The pay was good. I, I worked in a great department full of great people. I just had no reason to. And I was thinking all of this while I'm thinking, gee, I really wish I could find out whether or not I could have hacked it in the recording business. 
And eventually it just crept up on me. I've got to find out. I don't want to work at this job for the rest of my life and have that regret in the back of my mind that I could have done this other thing if only. So I rolled the dice. I was 30 years old. I quit my job and ended up moving to Los Angeles. Wow. Did you have another job in sight before you moved? Nothing. I had no idea what I was going to do. I didn't know if I wanted to go back to working in a big recording studio. I knew what that experience was like. I was worried about balancing my personal life and my health against what the reality of doing that job was. But very quickly when I got to LA, I just realized, well, this is a direction I have to take. So this is now 2005 into 2006. Because I had experience with analog tape machines, I got hired by the village out here who were helping out Ray Charles Enterprise. This is just after Ray Charles had passed away. They were helping them digitize their tape library, which is a project that I think might still be going on now. But that was how I could get my foot in the door, was they needed people to just run analog tapes all day and dump them off into Pro Tools and run. It was was like a history of recording to go through that tape library because the tape started with quarter-inch mono and then stereo, and then three track, and then four track, and then eight track. So there was not a format of tape that wasn't in that vault, and you had to figure it all out. It was it was fantastic. Plus, you're listening to amazing Ray Charles recordings every day. How can you complain about that? Yeah, and the uh, the pressures are a little different. Yes, a little easier to kind of coast in on on a gig like that. That was a definitely a nine to five type of gig because Ray Charles Enterprises was nine to five. We couldn't stay there all night long, even if we wanted to. So it was me and one other person from the village were over there doing the tape transfers. So it was relatively low stress. And yeah, it was a, it was a cool experience, but eventually that wound down, at least for me. And I ended up then becoming a a 30 year old runner at the village. How did that feel? Strange. If I'm being honest, and I'm, yeah. I'm trying to think back to it. I remember really trying to commit myself to it and say, listen, I may be 30 years old. I may have come to this after running a department of 35 people at Harvard, but <laughs> it doesn't matter because if this is what I want to do, this is a step I have to take. So I tried really hard not to ever look down on the job. I tried to look at it as a step towards what I wanted to do. I don't know if I was successful. I do know that the job only ended up lasting another few months after that, and they let me go. Mm. And rightly so, I will say. I won't say what happened. I'll just say I slipped up, and it may very well have been Because deep down, I was thinking to myself, I can do more than this. I'm better than this, which you you just can't do. So I've talked to a few people about coming into the industry or coming back into the industry at at an, an advanced age, we'll say. And with that comes the experience that you had at Harvard, the experience you had at Right Track. So in your mind, did you think, oh, I could crush this job? Because no, no, not at all, huh? No, 
I had an amazing teacher at Berkeley named Carl Beatty, who was also an amazing engineer before he was teaching at Berkeley. He had worked in New York. He recorded the horns on Love Shack. He did a bunch of mixing for Bronsky Beat. And I mean, you can look the guy up. He'd, he'd done some amazing stuff, but he was also very philosophical about the music business in general. And one thing that he had said to a class I was in was, the moment you think this business owes you anything is the moment you're done. Mm. And that just kept going through my head over and over and over again. That if I was ever expecting the music business to need me more than I needed it, chances were I was not in a good headspace to do whatever it is I was trying to do. Yeah, it's always a, a work in progress that you're, you always have to work for if you want it. Yes. And you can make the best of it or get a chip on your shoulder and think that it owes you something and then, as you say, be done. Yeah, and I think that, along with Barry Bon Jovi's, there are a whole lot easier ways to make money than doing this for a living. Like, I don't know stupid people in the recording business. They don't make it. You just have to have a certain level of drive and intelligence in order to do this job effectively. And everybody who does this is smart enough to do something else that pays more money <laughs> and is easier and you know has shorter hours and all that stuff. So at the end of the day, the only reason to stay with it is because you love it. And that four years I spent away at Harvard, I think it's easy if you start your adult life in the recording business and it's all you ever know, it's easy to tell yourself, oh, I really should have done something besides this. It would be so much easier. I would feel so much better about myself, but here I am stuck doing this. I knew for a fact that I had everything I could have asked for, and still I wasn't satisfied. And ever since then, my guiding light has been, if I ever wake up and think to myself for a number of days in a row, man, I really wish I'd never left Harvard, then I know I made the wrong choice. But it's never happened. The Harvard thing did one thing for you. It reaffirmed the passion you had for it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I realized if at age 30, I can go to my then-girlfriend, now-wife, say, I think I want to move to Los Angeles to give this recording thing one more shot. I'm going to give up this steady job at this fantastic place to work that most people would be thrilled to have Clearly, there's something else. I'm, I'm not wired the way other people are wired when it comes to what my priorities are. And this was my priority. So I knew I had to chase it. So you did the Ray Charles thing, then you did the runner thing. Yes. What came next? What came next was unemployment. For about six months, I was just trying to scrape together a living. My wife and I sat down and talked about it. She said, you should just go out, start seeing bands and, and talking to them about recording them and, and we'll worry about the money later. You just got to build yourself up. And I, I was scared to do that, but I thought, what other option do I have? So I was in the midst of doing that. I had a friend who had started a very small record label in Venice Beach who would hire me on occasion to do either some tech work or some engineering work. So I was piecing that together. And then eventually I got, well, I got a call to do some tech work at a studio in Northridge, they were installing a recording console. 
it was a shady situation where I eventually had to hold cabling hostage from the studio owner in order to get paid. And I thought to myself, wow, that was a total waste of my time. But there was another technician working on that gig as well. I got my money, forgot about it. And then maybe three or four months later, the other technician called me up and said, hey, I have a friend who is putting together a new studio, needs to have some wiring work done. I don't have time for it. Would you be interested? I wasn't interested in doing the wiring work, but I was interested in making money because I was flat broke. Mm. So I said, I'll tell you what, I don't really want to do it, but let me meet with him because I knew it was going to be a good month or month and a half of work. Said, if he's cool and, you know, I feel comfortable taking the job on, then I'll talk to him about doing it. Well, his friend was a fantastic human being first engineer and producer and mixer second named David Bianco. And I, I met David and he was the sweetest human being. And then I didn't know his resume. I went home, I looked him up, saw that he had either produced or mixed about six of my favorite records, (laughs) immediately called him and said, David, not only will I do this, I will do it for half price if you promise that while I'm soldering cables at 10 o'clock at night, you tell me stories about making these records. And he said, sure, (laughs) I'll do that. And he was true to his word. He would. He would sit next to me and, and I'd be like, I was like working on that Posey's record. <laughs> and he'd start telling me stories. He was always very self-deprecating, didn't want to. He was like, ah, man, people have heard these stories a million times. It's just I'm like, man, I haven't heard them once. So mm. it's all new to me. And that was really, David was my foot in the door in Los Angeles. After we got the studio up and running in the studio, David, as I'm sure you know, unfortunately passed away in 2018, but uh, the studio that we put together still exists. It's in North Hollywood. It's called Dave's Room, and uh, a couple of our friends run it. But back then, because I had helped David wire the room, he said, hey, why don't you you be my assistant for the first couple of sessions here? And and of course I said yes to that. And then I, I did that with David for a couple of months, and then my wife and I were getting married back on the East Coast, so I had to, to leave to get married. And David had, there was another very good friend of ours who was going to rotate off with me doing the assisting work anyway, so he was stepping in at that point. And David apparently said to him, we've got to get Will some work. And I, I was like, you, you don't owe me any of that, David. You know, what you've given me is is incredible. But the next thing I know, I'm getting a call about doing engineering work for a producer named Matt Wallace. Oh, that guy. <laughs> Who's studio I'm sitting in right now. That's right. Yeah. And I, I want to point out a couple things. So first off, you know, you mentioned Frank Filippetti much earlier. Frank's been on the show. I'll put a link in the show notes to Frank. Matt's been on the show. I'll put yes. a link in the show notes to that. So please carry on. I'm trying to hit all the working class audio highlights. Yeah. <laughs> so we can do a lot of cross promotion. <laughs> Yeah, so David and Matt shared a manager named Frank McDonough. That was the the hookup there. Matt at the time was a few years removed from having done the Maroon 5 record and was just making album after album after album. And in true Matt Wallace fashion, as I would learn, just looking for a way to keep the work rolling as fast as he could. So at a time when this wasn't the normal thing to do, he had 
at least two engineers working in this studio at a time. There'd be, you know, one of us kind of out in this main room doing guitars or lead vocals or something. And then there's another space in the back where we were doing editing or backing vocal overdubs or whatever, and then pulling everything together at the end of the day. And he hired me to be the backroom guy. So that's what I did. I, I came in. I very happily sat in the tiny back room and, and did all the editing work and the grunt work and had a great time doing it. Wow. <laughs> what a great spot to land in with a great person. I could not have, between David and Matt, who really are my Los Angeles mentors, I, I don't know how I could have landed amongst better people than I did. Just to quickly tell a story about how I knew I was in the right place pretty early on with Matt. We were working with a client who, and at the time, Matt was, was working pretty much 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. were the studio hours. He had a family, a young family he was taking care of. So he didn't want to be starting late. He didn't want to be working until five in the morning. And we had a client that kept pushing the envelope on starting later and later and later. And finally, the day came when... And he was very demanding to work with. He was one of those clients who was just difficult. No matter what you did, it was never quite good enough. So it was about two in the morning on this particular day, and he wanted to start another song at 2 a.m. Now, I'd been there since 10 a.m., and I know what the rules of the, the game are. But I went to Matt, and I said, listen, you know how this guy is. He wants to start a new song. It's 2 a.m. I will do whatever you ask me to do, but because he's as edgy as he is and because I'm not entirely on top of my game right now, this might not be the best recipe for success. And expecting Matt to go, well, you know, this is the job. This is what you do. <laughs> Far from that, he said, what time did you get here? I said, I got here at 10 in the morning. What is now yesterday? He's like, oh, go home. I need you fresh in the morning. He's like, listen, man, we're going to finish this record and then do another record and a record after that. He's going to leave here and not work on another record for two years. I need you to be a whole person for this whole process. So, yeah, get out of here. I got you covered. <laughs> I had never experienced that in any of my, my previous jobs in the recording business. I was like, this guy is taking a different approach to this, and I like it. Taking a human approach. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which is how he produces as well. Yeah. For the audience, if you listen to that in interview I did with Matt, I don't know if we talked about it then, but I was in a band that was on Warner Brothers and we interviewed Matt. I, I distinctly remember going to, to dinner with him in San Francisco. We interviewed him to potentially do a record at what was at the time the site up in Northern mm -hmm. California, north of San Francisco. And you know, not to say that I have any regrets about the people that we worked with, but I still to this day think, I wonder what if things would have been different had we made that record with Matt. And I bet they would yeah. have. I bet it would have been a, a great experience. So, Yeah, I mean, I started the story about Matt. That was the beginning of 2007, maybe April, May of 2007. And... Here I am 15 years later, partnered up with him in this Atmos studio. It really, for whatever reason, our partnership clicked. And that was a really fantastic thing for me. And 
I'd like to think Matt feels that way as well. Yeah, yeah. And that speaks volumes about the relationship. It's been that long. I mean, we all know bands, studio partnerships, marriages, whatever. It takes effort for a partnership in whatever form it takes. So that says a lot. Yes. Yeah, that was really the... David put me on the launching pad and then Matt lit the fuse. And that was the the two of those guys are responsible for me having a career. Wow. That's fantastic. All it takes is meeting the right person, right? Or the right two people in your case. Yeah. And to tell the story of how that happened, you know, I, I used to go back and occasionally talk to classes at Berkeley. And one of the questions would always be, how did you get started? And I said, I'm going to tell you this story, and it's going to sound like I'm making it up. I can't believe how it happened, but it just goes to show you, it pays to be nice to people. (laughs) It pays to do your best and to treat people with respect all the time. Because if I had just been a jerk on that job in Northridge and said, this sucks, these people suck, I don't want to be here then I wouldn't have gotten that phone call that hooked me up with David Bianco four months later. It's a big juggling act, isn't it? I mean, or a balancing act, I should say, because on the one hand, you determine how you're going to react to a situation and your reaction could shape the future in a multitude of ways. Yes. So your decision-making of how you handled yourself clearly paid dividends in the end. Yeah. And there's no, everybody's got a different style. I made that choice at that time, but it's, it's the butterfly effect. You just don't know, you don't know who knows who and what they might recommend you for or who you might need. And that's another thing about this business that this isn't a linear career path. It's not like I got a job at, at Apple and then I got a promotion and then I got a raise and two years down the line, I, I moved to this department and it doesn't work that way. And even if you switch companies, well, I have this experience and so now I'm worth this much money. It's very much a function of who you know, what you do, and how the business values your skill at a given time. And when you're at the top of that particular roller coaster, it's a high unlike anything else. But you have to understand there are very few people who stay there for very long. And if you want to have a long career in this business, the people you saw on your way up are probably (laughs) going to be the people you see when you're going down the other side of that hill into a more fallow period of work whose support you need. Somebody that I hired on as an assistant and basically an intern years ago recently was getting me work. She's a, a successful songwriter now. You know, it just pays to be good to people. And it's a really small business. You know, everybody knows everybody or at least has heard of everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I would love to just conclude with a few thoughts on Atmos because of our secret society we belong to and also (laughs) because of our mutual love for, for the format. A lot of the conversations I've been having lately with people are they're like, it's really cool. I've played them stuff. They're like, I love this. This is great. But what's the future? Because if the future is only Apple AirPod Pros, I don't know if I'm in. And and I've tried to tell people, look, there's a lot of big companies involved in this that want to sell some stuff. And 
one of those things could potentially be, and, and this is based on my hypotheticals in my own brain, nothing I've heard. So hopefully I'm not going to piss anybody off, but you know, whether it's Amazon or Apple, there could very easily be some smart speakers that are tied together in a format that creates Atmos in a much more closer way that say you and I hear it on our systems. So that's how I kind of pitch it to them. Like, do it now, be ready, because it's only going to grow. But that's my take. What is your take? Fairly similar to that. I think that if the people you're talking to are old enough to have been through the 5.1 surround sound music revolution of 20 years ago, or older still to have been through quad in the 70s and early 80s, I think that it builds in an immediate skepticism to, okay, we're doing this again. Mm -hmm. We've seen how this goes. We've read this book. We see what the end is. We're going to end up back doing stereo. And I will be honest, I was one of those people. There are some very key differences in how this technology works and in how it's being supported and in how music is distributed that make this a very different time than any of those. The first thing is nobody has to rebuy their music catalog. All they have to do is hit a touch button in their streaming service and they're listening to Atmos mixes. So that's number one. Number two, the companies that are backing this are fully involved in backing it in a way that they never supported 5.1 for sure. There's a lot riding on it for a lot of the industry in a way there hasn't been for a long time. And I just can't see them cutting and running on this. So as much as that's not exciting news to anybody, hey, here's this, here's these corporations telling you how you're going to consume music, that they're <laughs> really, they're really excited about it. I think that you're dead on about Bluetooth speakers in some form or other or networked speakers being a part of the solution in terms of home listening on, on speakers. I think the headphone translation is only going to get better mm -hmm. as time goes on. And I think that the big one that we're just at the tip of now is what happens in metaverse situations. The more people buy into metaverse, the more you're talking about listening parties in a metaverse that is going to be perfect for this format. We're talking about, I mean, we already during the pandemic saw concerts happening on Fortnite, which is essentially a, a small metaverse. This format is what works in those situations for a lot of technical reasons aside from the it can be all around you and it works on headphones um, it just plays nicely with the way those things are programmed so i look at the future and it's i wanted to say this isn't going to work and i don't want to invest in it and i already know how to do stereo stuff and we're going to end up back there anyway but number one then i heard it in a way that made me realize what the creative and emotional potential is of it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, in, in talking to the people who are stakeholders in this, I, I realized, okay, there's an investment in this that was not there before. And 
I really feel like this is a moment where you can either choose to get on board or eventually you're going to get left behind. I know it sounds bizarre, but my guess is that within five years, well, let's say five to 10 years, the stereo mix is going to be secondary to the immersive mix. In fact, the stereo mix might be generated from the immersive mix. I, I was going to say, yeah, that it, that was my guess. Yeah. Well, I, I share your enthusiasm and your viewpoint, and I I hope that this conversation ages well so that in five <laughs> and ten <laughs> years, too. they're not playing this, that people aren't playing this back to us going, ah, you remember that? Uh, you guys had to sell a few speakers, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> you you and Matt are partnered up in this and yes. you're wearing a, you're wearing a Cali audio shirt. Cali, <laughs> yes, I am. Yeah. So Cali audio, if I'm correct, those are all like ex JBL people that started a new company after I believe Harmon started to make some moves at JBL that pissed everybody off and all the smart people left. Yep. Is the story that I hear. So it is the story they told us. Okay. So Cali audio is making some what I perceive as some great speakers at a great price point that allows one to get into Atmos at a slightly less expensive rate than say some others. I chose to go with PMC cause mm -hmm. I, you know, I, that's what I wanted to do, but I did get a Cali audio sub in the process because it just, I couldn't justify spending the, the money on a PMC sub, just my right. personal preference. And this is not an advertisement for Cali, but my point in saying this is that there are ways to get into Atmos that don't cost an arm and a leg. It's it's going to be an investment one way or the other. Yes. Okay. Several thousand dollars, but yes. it doesn't have to be 20, 30, 40 grand. You can enter in at a lower price point. Would you agree? Absolutely. And that was what, when Matt and I sat down and talked about doing this, both of us having started off as skeptics, our first rule was, we're not going to spend so much money on this that if in a year this format crashes and burns, or if in two years it crashes and burns, we're looking back going, good Lord, what do we do with all these speakers and what do we do with all this equipment? We spent so much money. We just couldn't afford that. You know, we know people who were getting funding from various places and were able to go out and spend $50,000, sixty, dollars $80,000 on a PMC, for example, speaker system. We were not in that situation. And we thought, you know what, we're just going to try and get our foot in the door with this and Matt and I both share a love of working within limitations and think that it brings out great things creatively. Mm -hmm. So we thought, okay, well, that's the situation we're setting up here. We know how to do this. Let's go do it. And I knew we'd be looking at low-cost speakers in order to hit the price point we wanted to. So I started shopping around. I haven't needed to buy a pair of speakers in 20 years. I've been using a pair of ProAx Studio 100 since 2001 and I never planned to replace them. So I had to dive back into a world that I really didn't know very much about, and somebody had mentioned Cali, and I looked at the price point and went, that's about what we want to spend. And, you know, I don't want to say who they were up against, but there were we were considering three different speakers, and Cali is located in Burbank here in California, and I was able to call them up and say, hey, have you guys done anything with Atmos? And they said, actually, we just built a little Atmos room in our offices here in Burbank. Do you want to come over and listen? 
So I went and I listened and it sounded incredible. And I talked to the, the guys that you're talking about, the former JBL guys. And I also went and listened to the other speakers. And I thought that I was kidding myself because I was like, these Cali speakers sound like speakers I could work on, like to do stereo stuff, mm -hmm. that I'd be happy with these. And I kept telling myself, no, it can't be, can't be. They just don't cost enough. The parts aren't good enough, whatever. But when we got this room up and running, we were absolutely floored by the way it sounds. So the idea that you have to spend 50 grand on a speaker setup is absolutely untrue. It's so untrue, in fact, that Studio F at the Village just was redone with a Cali Atmos system. So you've got, you know, one of the big studios in Los Angeles saying, we're going to take this leap and we're going to do it with these not high cost speakers. Yeah. So there are some speaker choices out there you can make to have a cohesive system where you yeah. don't have to have a bunch of mismatched speakers. And having one thing I want to make sure I said while we were here is having mismatched speakers in an Atmos setup is a terrible idea. You can do it. The spec says you shouldn't do it. And I could not more highly agree with that. It was one of the downfalls of 5.1 was the idea that the rear speakers didn't have to match the front speakers. And yeah. this is not that. Well, and then, then the other cost, of course, and we won't go too much deeper into this, but the other mm -hmm. cost is the speaker controller that yes. is, you know, the hub of it all. And one can make a million, not a million choices, but a few choices there. You guys are using the, what's it called? Oddly, Sorry. the JBL Intonato. You're using the JBL Intonato. Yes, we are. Okay, so that's a choice. The Grace M908 is the choice I made. Some other mm -hmm. people make the choice of going the Avid route with the... Um, mm -hmm. The Matrix Studio. The Matrix Studio and the Dad Mom controller, mm -hmm. which I think is from Digital Audio Denmark. Is that the name of that company? Yes. Okay, that makes the controller for that system. So there's a few choices out there, but it's a lot of fun. I think you'll agree. And you and Matt have had some great successes with it. And earlier you mentioned a former, I think it was a person at Berkeley who had recorded the horns on Love Shack. Yes. Which, I, if I'm correct, you and Matt have done the Atmos mix of Love Shack. That is correct. That we It's something we take great pride in. We're both huge fans of the B-52s and that song in particular. And it gave me a full circle moment where I got to call my old teacher and say, hey, I'm mixing your horns right now. <laughs> <laughs> because we got the digital transfers of the original multi-track tapes. Wow. Yeah, incredible experience. You guys have been pretty successful in getting some uh, catalog work. Yes. And that, of course, does not come without its its challenges because depending on the era that you got it from, you're going to be faced with maybe everything was done on the two inch, but maybe there was sequence drums and they're mix missing and they weren't printed to the multi-track. And there's all kinds of weirdness that goes on with that. And Love Shack had a number of those problems. The first one was that the, the tape speed from the multi-track didn't match the master. And eventually we figured out it was because they, they VSO'd the master. They sped up the tape speed during mastering to give it a little extra, little goose. A little zip. Pitch it up and give it a little extra tempo. 
So <laughs> we had to do that. The, the version of Love Shack that everybody knows is the single version. The album version is like a minute longer. So we had to go in and do all of those edits and listen very carefully for how they were done in the first place so that our version matched the version that everybody knows. There were elements of, and I'm you know trying to match because we had to first match the, the stereo version of the mix in feel and in tone before we could move on to doing the Atmos part of the mix. So a lot of how would they have done this back then, in the case of Love Shack, Don was produced it. So thinking a lot about, okay, what would he have done here? How would they have approached this? Should we approach it the same way? Can we do it differently and get away with it? Or might it be a little better if we do it this way? But you're, especially with a song like that, that was such a huge hit, that it is beloved by millions of people. And the last thing we want to be are the people who ruined Love Shack <laughs> for a new generation of listeners. Right. I think we we did a pretty great job. Everybody has been very complimentary who has heard it so far. And I, I like to think that we we did it justice. I think you did, because I've listened to it and I do think you did a great job. So oh, I, thank you. I, I will jump in that pool of people that that thinks you did a great job. So Definitely not without its challenges if you're doing catalog work. And of course, yes. you know, if you're if you're trying to price yourself accordingly, those are some considerations because while the Atmos mix itself may go rather quick, it's all the research leading up to finding all the parts, making sure we got all the edits right, all of these things that we we've mentioned, and then there's probably a million other things that could go wrong as well. Would it be accurate to say that you think the newer the song is the easier it is because if it was done within the last 15 to 20 years odds are it was possibly done in pro tools and the files are just there as they were well we're running into issues there as well the easiest mixes we've had so far have been brand new frontline releases that were recorded within the last year and even there we're running into it was a, a bizarre thing that I, I had a conversation with a mastering engineer friend who shed some light on it for me, where we knew an entire project had been done in DAWs, if not all in Pro Tools, yet we still had stereo masters that didn't match the length of the multi-tracks. And this mastering engineer friend said, you know, because so many mastering engineers, they're still running stuff through analog equipment, they often have a separate playback rig from a print rig and they're not clocking the two together. So over the course of a three and a half minute song, you might get like a half a second adrift from what the multi-tracks were. The problem is that we have to deliver our Atmos mix to be within one frame length at the beginning and at the end of that stereo master. So we're having to make changes to the multi-tracks to match these stereo masters that were done with unclocked rigs. Now, nobody knew this was gonna be a problem, so it's not like you can blame anybody for it, but it's now becoming an issue. We've had stems delivered that weren't split out in a way that worked well for us as Atmos mixers. They might've been created with a live show in mind, and they were fantastic for that, but they didn't leave us with enough choices to do the job we needed to do, so we've had to have 
you know, another set of stems printed for us. And we've been really lucky to work with some folks who've been willing to, to make that extra effort so that the Atmos makes it sound great. Atmos in general and on every level requires more technical skill and knowledge than has necessarily been required of us as recording engineers for a long time. You know, it's all been made very easy in a lot of ways. And I'm not complaining about that. I'm very happy to have benefited from the, the ease of use that we've, we've gotten as digital technology has advanced. But this, in a lot of ways, puts us back in a position of having to be craftspeople and technicians. Wow. Incredible. Well, I tell you what, Will, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap it up with you. I, I could right. talk to you all night, but I think we both have other things that we got to get to. Audience, for you, I want to direct your attention to willkennedyproducer.com. You can check out all things Will Kennedy. I'll put a link to that in the show notes so you don't have to remember that. We'll wrap up with this really quick. You spent six months living and working in Nairobi, Kenya on a singing contest show and an album and wrote an article for Time Magazine about it? <laughs> in 2012, I touched base with a fellow Berkeley alum who was also a political activist in Kenya named Eric Wainaina. We ended up working on a single together that became a hit over there. He asked me to then produce his next album. That finally got off the ground in 2015, and at the same time, he was being hired as the music director of this singing contest show called Maisha Superstar that took contestants from Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda, brought them all to Nairobi, and then they competed against one another. And so he said they want to do what's never been done in East Africa on one of these shows is the American Idol model of the song is released on iTunes the moment the show comes out. So you can hear it on the TV show, go to iTunes and listen to it. And the reason it hadn't been done is because the infrastructure over there was nowhere near being able to support doing that level of work. I mean, that I knew the people, I knew some people that worked on American Idol and I, I knew they had, I think it was two studios running 24 hours a day to be able to produce all those songs. Now we had fewer contestants, but we had a much smaller staff. I essentially had to build a 16-track recording studio in Los Angeles, ship the equipment to Kenya, rebuild it over there, and then every week we would do, there were six contestants on the show, every week we would produce, arrange, record, mix, master six songs to have them out to, to Apple by the time the show aired. And then we used the money that I got paid to come over to do that to piggyback producing Eric's record. So I spent three months working on the TV show and three months working on the album. Wow. I bet that was quite an experience. It was life-changing. Yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. Fantastic. It's, it's great to talk to you in person because, quite honestly, audience, Will and I have only been talking over iMessenger yes. for a little while now. So... It's great to see you in person because at the, the absolutely at the meeting the other day I didn't get to see you because you were off camera. But I was. That's right. <laughs> I was I was being AV guy again for a day. That's right. It was, ba it was back to Harvard. Yes. All right, Will. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for being on the show. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Okay. Take care. 
Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Will Kennedy here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I hope you enjoyed the interview. I, of course, did. Remember, if you have a guest suggestion, you can go to workingclassaudio.com, fill out the guest suggestion form, send it on over. We'll do a little research on your guest and maybe we'll have them on. Maybe we won't. We'll see. Anyways, fill out that form and we'll uh, consider your suggestion. But that's all for me today. I want to thank my crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Chuck Smith, of course, there at the beginning of the show. I was going to say something clever, but I lost it. Anyways, connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.